Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. Hey there, listeners. Brian here with a weekend special of our Daily Politics Podcast. Instead of the latest politics, today we're going to go back into the archives of my daily live radio show to play excerpts from some conversations I've had over the years with former President Jimmy Carter. He was on the show four times between 2010 and 2015, and of course some argue that it was that period, it was actually after his presidency, that Carter really established his legacy. He won the Nobel Peace Prize just last year. So you'll hear a bit of a longer podcast than usual with three of those conversations with Jimmy Carter about things like human rights, gender equality and religion, and also about the U.S. relationship with China and the use of sanctions as a diplomatic stick in the stick-and-carrot model of foreign policy. So let's get into it with my archival conversations with President Jimmy Carter. As most of you have heard, Carter has announced that he has entered hospice care, refusing any more medical treatment. He's 98 years old. No president of the United States has ever lived longer. President Carter came on the show four times between 2010 and 2015. I always found him incredibly open and down to earth. He took calls from listeners. He thought broadly and deeply about his work and about his career and about his life and about the world. Honestly, he's been one of my favorite guests. We will play these excerpts at this time, right around 11 o'clock, today, tomorrow, and Friday. For today, I've picked out a few stretches from his appearance in 2012, when a version of the Bible was released called the NIV Lessons from Life Bible, annotated with personal reflections from Jimmy Carter, who told me he had been teaching Sunday school for 65 years. I teach a different uh, lesson uh, every Sunday. Uh, This particular month, we happen to be studying some of the parables of Jesus, but then next month we go to the Old Testament. I was given some excerpts from the NIV Lessons from Life Bible marked as passages important to you. So I thought we might go through a few of these. Mark 2, 15 through 17, on despising others, about Jesus sitting with Levi, an outcast, and the role of tax collectors. What's important to you about this? Well, I think it indicates that Jesus uh, reached out to people who were unsavory or despised or second-rate in the community. Uh, Lepers in that day, for instance, were treated like we first treated people with uh, AIDS. They were looked upon as condemned by God. And, of course, tax collectors were at the bottom of the social list as far as the Jewish hierarchy was concerned because they were looked upon as betraying their own people and collecting taxes from the Romans for for the Romans. For the Romans who were oppressing them. That's right, and keeping part of it themselves, most of them. So they were looked upon as both dishonest and also as traitors to their own people. Is there any... But the important thing is that Jesus reached out to those habitually who were despised or in need or 
inarticulate or suffering or poor. How about the persistent outcast status of gays and lesbians among some of the most observant Christians? Why do you think people are so dug in on that in the name of Jesus, who is supposed to be tolerant? Well, uh, Jesus wrote and spoke about a lot of different sins that we have, like selfishness and pride and so forth. He never mentioned homosexuality. And, of course, we know that even in days before Christ, in Roman history and so forth, there was a lot of, uh, of gay practices. So I think Jesus didn't condemn gay people, and our church accepts gay members. We don't question people when they come to our church. But uh, I think there's a natural inclination on the part of human beings to put ourselves in a position superior to some kind of other people. I grew up in the Deep South when white people considered themselves to be superior to African Americans, and it was condoned and approved by the Supreme Court and by the Congress and other people. Now, of course, that's over, at least legally, and uh, and we see Americans now turning to despise what they call illegal aliens or people who come here from Mexico or other southern countries. So, so uh, I think in almost any society there's a tendency to exalt ourselves and our particular character of life above and beyond some other people. But that's what uh, some people, even if they're Christians, are concerning those who happen to be gay. Another passage from Mark that I have here as one of interest to you is 9, 33 through 35 on selfishness. We want to be the greatest. We want to focus on ourselves. What is it about that passage for you? Well, you know, although they're not mentioned in the Bible, they, some people uh, include seven sins. And I think the number one origin of most sinfulness is, is the uh, sin of, of pride, self-exaltation, uh, placing ourselves above others. Uh, and this leads to many um, other sins like selfishness. We want to keep what we have for ourselves and not share it with others because we don't think they're equal to us uh, in societal's point of view or, or in the eyes of God where Paul wrote to the Galatians that, that all people are equal in the eyes of God, men and women and slaves and masters and Jews and Greeks and so forth. And I think that's what um, Christianity teaches us, that we should not be uh, selfish in withholding the benefits in life that we have. And those benefits include uh, not only money, but also our time, our effort, our intelligence. And God gives every person, regardless of their IQ or their level of uh, education or their wealth, adequate ability to exercise the teachings of Christ, to be loving and forgiving and and unselfish and humble uh, and sharing. So I think that's a very good lesson that Mark does. Mark is one of the most uh, interesting um, books in the Bible because it's almost like a newspaper account of what happened uh, in Jesus' life. And as, as you probably know, both Matthew and Luke copy what Mark wrote first. John Oh, the third gospel is completed separate. We're doing a series on our program called The End of War, based on the book of that title by science writer John Horgan. He argues that just as humanity turned slavery and human sacrifice from acceptable institutions to unacceptable ones, that war could be made culturally unacceptable around the world 
with the right effort over time. So we're asking many of our guests, do you think human beings can ever abolish war? Do you? Yes, I think that's certainly uh, true. Certainly uh, a, a future prayer to um, to expend. Um, and I think a lot of people felt that that might be the case in 1945 when we organized the, the United Nations, that that would be the end of war. But we know that it isn't. And um, I think that this is something that uh, that we should do. I, I wrote a book a number of years ago called Talking Peace, where I described the causes of conflict and how we can resolve issues peacefully, even the most uh, intense uh, disagreements and the most intense personal animosity between two people or two nations can be resolved through the application of Christian principles and, and with the help of a trusted mediator, either a, a, a counselor in a church or a mediator, like I played a small role between Egypt and Israel. But I think that's certainly a possibility. And uh, nowadays, unfortunately, uh, my wife and I have been to more than 130 countries, and now when we travel around doing work for the Carter Center, it's generally accepted that the most intense warmonger for the last 35 or 40 years has been the United States of America. We're the, we're the country that's, that's in the forefront of almost every war that started. And when you go into Brazil, when you go into China, when you go into Egypt and so forth, you find countries that haven't been to war. Uh, in the last 30 years or more. Um, Rosa and I were discussing at lunch today. I, well, she was reading an article about it, that some people live in a life never without peace. And uh, as a matter of fact, we have grandchildren uh, who have never lived in a country that was not at war. Warmonger is a tough word to describe your country. Well, I, wasn't, I was quoting other people, but our country is in the forefront of well, those nations that are eager to go to war to resolve differences. And we've proven that, as you know, in, in a number of cases for a long time. We went into Korea, we went into, when we went into Vietnam, uh, when we went into Iraq both times. I think all those wars were, were unnecessary. Yesterday's excerpts were about the passages of the Bible that Carter annotated. He's a religious Christian, as many of you know, and he had annotated a version of the Bible that was published in 2012 when we did that interview. In 2014, he came back on the show with a much harsher take on an aspect of religion. He wrote a book then called A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. Now, we also talked in that appearance about Vladimir Putin invading Crimea. You'll hear how eerily relevant his answer is to Putin's war on the rest of Ukraine today. And he took listener calls. We'll replay one of those. They said it runs about seven minutes. We pick it up where I asked President Carter about the premise of the new book compared to his last one. You and I have spoken about religion before in the context of your faith and your lifetime of teaching the Bible. So why point to religion now as a prime cause of what you call the most serious problem in the world? Well, religion and violence are the two generic causes of the abuse of women and girls around the world. And uh, it's a misinterpretation of some of the scriptures that result in uh, abuse of women and derogation of them in the eyes of men because they are convinced that women are inferior in the eyes of God. 
And for religious people even uh, that are Christians, for instance, we know that Jesus Christ in his uh, ministry and his words, all the recorded words, uh, he never discriminated against women. In fact, he exalted women far below, far above what they had ever been previously in history. But even in the New Testament, where St. Paul began to write to the early churches, he wrote to individuals, sometimes little tiny churches that had 20 or 30 members, and he, uh, some of his uh, verses can be interpreted either way. So for the first three centuries in the Christian church, at least, women played an equal role, as Paul points out in his 16th chapter of Acts. But uh, after that, the men who ran the church began to say, why don't we select other verses which show that women are not qualified to be priests or deacons in the church. And uh, Can you give me an example of either of these verses on either side of this? Well, yeah. In fact, Paul said to one of his uh, small churches that women should always ad- never adorn themselves, uh, that women should be silent in church, and there's even a verse that says women shouldn't teach men. And But on the other hand, he said that in the eyes of God, men and women are equal, as, as are slaves and masters and are Jews and Gentiles, they are equal in the eyes of God. And as I just mentioned in, in the 16th chapter that I mentioned, he lists about 25 people who were preeminent in leadership roles in the early church, and about half of them are women by name. So you can interpret it either way you want to if you uh, have a preference. There are 36,000 verses, uh, more or less, in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew text, and, a, and in, the, in the New T- Testament. So you can interpret it any way you want to. Am I right that you and Mrs. Carter left your Christian denomination of 70 years over women's issues? Yes. In the year 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention deviated from its previous policy and uh, ordained that women, in being inferior, uh, could not occupy the positions of pastor or deacon or chaplain. Uh, and they also even ordained it in some of the seminaries, which is the higher education level of, uh, of the Southern Baptist Church, that women couldn't even teach boys in a classroom. So it's not even just that they're not coming along as fast as some other denominations. It's that even in the post-feminist era, if you will, they went the other way. They went the other way in the year 2000. And, and so my wife and I left the Southern Baptist Convention. We now belong to a Baptist church where I teach Bible lessons every Sunday, as a matter of fact. Uh, and we've had uh, women pastors, and my wife is a deacon. Uh, the chairman of our board of deacons the last time was a woman, and we have a majority of deacons who are women. So we treat men and women equally, which I believe that Jesus Christ always exemplified and promulgated as his policy. Kevin in Ridgewood, you're on WNYC with President Jimmy Carter. Hello. Yes, hello. Good morning, Kevin. Hi, President Carter. Um, my question is based upon your book, and it's, it's based upon where does the solution begin? Because obviously it's not a denouncing of religion, but it's looking for a change in views and how scriptures are interpreted. That's true, Kevin. And I want to point out that in the, in the book, there are 23 different specific recommendations that I give to, con- to uh, assuage the abuse of women all over the world. And uh, it, start, it ought to start in our own country because here we have a terrible uh, abuse of women and girls. For instance... In our two most uh, respected, uh, I'd say, institutions, the university system and in our military, that's where sexual abuse is most prevalent and is least brought to the attention of authorities because a college president and the deans of a college, even Emory University where I teach or Harvard or whatever, 
they don't want to have a reputation in their universities that sexual abuse is increasing. Speaking of macho men and sanctions for that matter, how do you see Vladimir Putin in historical terms? You were president during the Cold War. Is he the latest expression of a centuries-long Russian expansionism, or how do you see Putin in historical terms? Well, in a way, I see him uh, similar to what I saw Brezhnev uh, when I was president, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, and I wanted to make certain that they didn't go any further. So I immediately withdrew the American ambassador. I declared an embargo against, uh, against Russia, Soviet Union then. <clears throat> I approved the action of the Congress and the Olympic Committee to withdraw from the Olympics, which is very important to them. 1980 Olympics. Yes, and recently to Putin. <clears throat> and I also uh, let Merezhnev know with a public statement that if he went any further than Afghanistan, that we would uh, take military action to stop that invasion. And then we began secretly to give weapons to the freedom fighters in Afghanistan, which eventually resulted in the Soviets having to withdraw under Gorbachev. I th- Putin, I think, uh, is, uh, was dedicated to taking over Crimea. I don't think that any outside force could have prevented that taking place because most of the Crimeans wanted to go into the Russian orbit. But I think that now he has to be stopped. And, if, and I, I watched with great attention last week, I think, when he made a speech saying we're not going to do that in eastern Crimea. East, I think eastern Ukraine. In, excuse me, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, but Crimea is, is going to be part of Russia, no matter what anybody on the outside does. I think that what Putin is going to do now is try to woo the people in eastern Ukraine who are Russian-speaking and so forth with uh, blandishments, with e- good trade, with loans and grants. easy traffic to and from Russia and and so forth. I think he's going to try to seduce them to believing that they will be better off in an alliance with Russia than the West. You know, some people say the current crisis is as much the West's fault for pushing NATO membership all the way to Russia's doorstep since the Cold War and boxing Russia in and making it feel defensive. (laughs) Do you support that theory at all? I can see the justification for the theory with which I don't agree. As I mentioned earlier, I believe that Putin was dedicated to taking Crimea no matter what happened. And uh, I don't think that anything could have deterred him from doing so. So from Carter and Russia, we move to Carter and China. I mentioned that Carter is 98 in 2015, he released a book called A Full Life, Reflections at 90. And he came on the show to talk about it. He, of course, tells many stories about his life and his work. I ask him here about one of the stories that surprised me. This runs about three minutes. One that surprised me in the book was about China, that you helped to set up local democratic elections in places around the country. The Chinese government let you do that? Well, I didn't do it. The Chinese government did it. Deng Xiaoping thought that it was best to let local people elect their own officials. The, the, the local people, or the, the cities, the, the small towns, are not part of the Communist Party system, which starts with big cities and then goes to counties and provinces. And so he thought that it would be better to let them handle their own local affairs, you know, uh, potholes in the streets and, and collection of garbage and running the schools and that sort of thing. So he asked the Carter Center to monitor the process of holding local democratic elections. So we did that for 12 years. 
and we actually put forward proposals and let them be as pure a democratic process as we could possibly envision. Everybody would be registered to vote automatically when they reached the age of 18, both men and women. Uh, anybody could run for office, whether they were a member of the Communist Party or not. Uh, there would be a secret ballot. They would serve for a limited amount of time. They could run for re-election if they wanted to. And we, we monitored that process and reported on the uh, progress that was made toward pure democracy in more than almost a million uh, small communities, 650,000 still. And, uh, and that's what the Carter Center did for, for a long time in China. Eventually, our websites, which got to be extremely popular, were kind of a measuring stick on how well China itself was moving toward democratic principles. So we've been uh, subject of tightening up lately, and we don't have nearly as much freedom to run our websites and, and have uh, thousands of uh, hits on it every, every minute, as a matter of fact, like we did before. Why do you think that is? Did Beijing feel burned or threatened by the results of your work with local democracy? Yes. Deng Xiaoping was completely in favor of it. In fact, he induced the government to pass all the laws I've just described to you. And Jiang Zemin, who followed him, was also quite um, progressive on that issue. Hu Jintao, the, the one that was served last, has, has been much more restraining on that process. And, and, and Xi Jinping, the current uh, president of China, is much more recalcitrant about this issue. Also, there's been a lot of conflict between the Communist Party officials, who kind of look upon themselves as ultimate authorities, and, and, and the local people who elected their own local officials. And so this argue, there are arguments back and forth about what to do with surrounding land and, and, and taxation and things of that kind. And so there's been a lot of uh, dissension within China as this inevitable clash comes forward between the old Communist Party officials on the one hand and, and the newly elected uh, folks from the local governments. So, so that's why it's, it's much more tight now, much more reluctant to make, uh, I'd say, democratic process progress than it was before. Jimmy Carter here in 2015 on China, which, of course, is so front and center to U.S. policy today. It was surprising to me to hear, because I had never known that story, that China had been experimenting with local elections. And unfortunately, Carter saw already in 2015, as he said in that clip, that Xi Jinping was becoming a different kind of leader, one who had less tolerance for experiments with democracy. So what about human rights? which Carter was so well known for advancing during and after his presidency? And what about sanctions in pursuit of, US, uh, of human rights, which the U.S. increased again this week? Sanctions are in the news this week on Russia for its crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Well, we'll reach back to Carter's first appearance on the show in 2010 for a book called White House Diary, and he surprised me here, too, when I asked him about sanctions. This is just a minute and a half at the very end of the interview. What do you think the U.S. goal should be with respect to some of the world's worst human rights violators like North Korea? Should it be a normalization of relations or more pressure to see a regime like that fall? I don't think the sanctions work. I, I think in generic terms, sanctions against the people of a country like Cuba for now more than 50 years or North Korea and so forth, I think they're counterproductive because they strengthen the regime with which we disagree. And um, they, now the Cuba uh, dictators, Raul and, and Fidel Castro, can blame all of their economic problems on the American sanctions. 
And the same thing is <clears throat> the case in uh, North Korea where the sanctions are preventing our working toward a goal that all of us want. That is a denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula and a peace agreement or peace treaty between or among the United States and, and North and South Korea to replace the temporary uh, ceasefire, which legally means that we're still at war and just suffering on a ceasefire. So I think we ought to be much more accommodating, much more reaching out to find a common ground on which we can resolve these differences. President Carter, I know you have to go. Thank you so much for your time today. I've enjoyed talking to you. You have some good questions, and you knew what you're talking about. It's a pleasure. Thank Th you. Thank you, sir. My great pleasure. Jimmy Carter here in 20, let's see, that one was in 2010. And joining me now for a few minutes to wrap up this short series is Jonathan Alter, veteran journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author of books about FDR, Barack Obama, and Jimmy Carter. His Carter book, which just came out in 2020, is called His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, always great to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks, Brian. Let's start with the excerpts we just played. Did you know China, under communist rule, held democratic elections for local office, and that Carter had any involvement in that? Uh, I did, uh, but I also know that it was a relatively short-lived um, experiment. And unfortunately, as President Carter indicated, it didn't last as long as uh, one would hope. Um, in my book, I'm much more focused on Carter's normalization of relations with China in 1979, which uh, few people remember, um, but had uh, long lasting effects. In fact, uh, Carter told me at one point that he thought that normalization would have the longest lasting effect of anything he did as president, and he did a lot. So um, before normalization, just to give you some idea, um, China had the uh, GDP of a sub-Saharan sub African country. And after normalization, when Deng Xiaoping returned from meeting with President Carter in, in Washington, uh, first thing he did um, was legalize private property. And then, uh, you know, over the course of the next few decades, as we know, um, the, uh, you know, a billion people came out of poverty in China and the bilateral relationship that we have as a result of Carter's normalization generates more than a trillion dollars in trade and is the foundation of the global economy. So what Carter did in 1979 was of just huge importance. Um, and some other people have argued that, oh, it would have happened anyway, but actually Gerald Ford wouldn't have done it if he had beaten Carter. Uh, in 1976, hmm. Ronald Reagan was against it. And so it would have been several years uh, at a minimum before we had the global economy that we have today, for better or worse. Well, I think this goes to a large theme of your book. And I was going to ask you about that normalization piece, because you argue in the book that Carter's reputation as a failed president, but a very successful former president, is unfair to what you think was actually a very good presidency. And thinking about this normalization with China that was so historic as you were just describing, uh, people who think about this period think, oh, Nixon went to China, right? Nixon in China. John Adams even wrote an opera about it. <laughs> um, right. But not Carter goes to China and normalizes relationships. So would you put that in the context of 
good presidency, not just post-presidency? Yes. So uh, Jimmy Carter was a political failure as president. Uh, you could argue he was a stylistic failure compared to Ronald Reagan. But I argue um, with it, what I really think is a tremendous amount of evidence that he was a substantive and often far-sighted success. So as journalists, you know, we tend to view presidents by how they do politically. And he didn't stack up that well. You know, he made a number of political mistakes. Uh, he was crushed by Reagan. But historians need to look at presidents on how they changed the country and the world. And in that area, and China is just one of many examples we could talk about, he really set us on um, the right path. Unfortunately, some of that path, you know, they, uh, there were steps backwards, just to give you, uh, you know, maybe the best known example. Um, you know, he put solar panels on the roof of the White House uh, and Reagan took them down. Mm. And a different kind of solar didn't go back up until Obama. And he wanted to address climate change, Jimmy Carter did, um, but his successors didn't. Um, so I, I, the list, particularly on the environment, where he signed 15 major pieces of legislation, doubled the size of the National Park Service, introduced the first fuel economy standards, the first support for uh, clean energy, the first toxic waste cleanup. I'm just scratching the surface here of his accomplishments just in that one area. And then uh, in foreign policy, uh, you know, as you suggested, uh, China uh, was overlooked, but uh, I think even um, the human rights uh, policy and what that accomplished, and certainly the Panama Canal treaties, which prevented a major war in Central America. And uh, of course, the Camp David Accords, which made peace between uh, Israel and Egypt. And even there, you know, uh, again, I'm just scratching the surface. We could we could tour the globe and we could talk about what he did uh, with policy in Africa and Asia and Latin America. The human rights policy um, helped lead uh, a number of countries to move from uh, autocracy to democracy. And even in you know the areas of his well-known failures, uh, like uh, the Iran hostage crisis, uh, people forget that after the election all 52 of the hostages came home safely. And as as Carter told me, you know, his mother was urging him to bomb Iran. And if he had bombed Iran, he probably would have been reelected, but um, the hostages would have been killed. And Carter he, he talked about on that on the show one time. I didn't pull that clip, but how he thought uh, that in a way, his management of the hostage crisis in Iran, even though it was a big factor in him getting not reelected, um, was a success because they never hurt the hostages and they never killed the hostages. And he thought, yes, if he had listened to the right wingers and bombed Iran, they probably would have killed the hostages. And he resisted, as you say, even though it wasn't in his immediate political interest. Jonathan, I want to play one, one final clip. Um, this is from an appearance by Carter here in 2012. So he was already 87 at that time and already thinking about the potential end of his life and um, his relationship with Christianity through his life. And you'll hear here, I ask him if he believes in an afterlife. We 
just have a few minutes left. I'm curious, as a Christian, do you believe in an afterlife? Yes, I do. I believe in an afterlife. I don't know what form it would take and, and so forth, but I believe in it. But but we're taught in in my Sunday school class, and I think in most churches that we don't we don't believe in Christ and 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 try to exemplify the life of Christ in our own actions, just so we'll have an afterlife. We do it because we are blessed by the knowledge of Jesus, and and we're blessed by the love of God. So an afterlife is there, but it's not the motivation for us to to accept Christ. It's a reward that we have, and uh, nobody knows uh, who will be there. Who, who Jesus said that in the final judgment, you know, there'll be sheep and goats, and some will be chosen to to their surprise. Some will not be chosen to their surprise. So I think it's an unpredictable kind of thing, but I believe in it. Jimmy Carter here in 2012. Jonathan Alter, before you go, one of the things that emerged for me as I listened back to these four appearances of Carter on the show um, was a kind of tension that I thought I heard between his deep, devout Christianity and the ways that he was very critical of things that were done in the name of Christianity. There, he kind of suggests that uh, people um, in the church, in various churches, use belief in an afterlife to coerce people into one kind of behavior or another that they want to control them into doing. Uh, and, and he rejected that, even though he said he believes there is some kind of reward or punishment of life after death. Is that typical of, of Carter as you hear him? Absolutely. And we had a number of conversations about this, Brian. Um, toward the end uh, of uh, his life, you know, starting when he was in his 80s and early 90s, he, you know, he broke with the Southern Baptist Convention over their uh, treatment of women. And he also got into a series of, um, I guess you could call them theological disputes that that, that last clip suggested um, over what the Bible says about homosexuality. He has a a much more liberal uh, biblical interpretation. And, you know, his knowledge of scripture is extraordinary. Um, I think everybody knows he was a Sunday school teacher and I, you know, attended some of those sessions. Um, The thing to understand about him, and I think it's clear from the clips, is that he brings extraordinary thoughtfulness and obviously intelligence to everything he does and effort. I mean, the book is, my book is called His Very Best because he has always been all in. And this includes religion. So he was the most religious man ever to hold the Oval Office. And, you know, I go through his born again experience and when he's uh, going door to door for Jesus in 19. 19- 68. Um, but he always does it with um, the questioning spirit of the Enlightenment. So it's this mm. fascinating blend of faith and reason and Enlightenment. And of course, he's an engineer. Um, and the way those play out across his epic life, hugely eventful and colorful life, um, starting out in the Jim Crow South, and the way he resolves all these things and his 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 concern about how religion has been used to uh 
to hurt black people and to justify slavery and all kinds of other things. This all comes into play. He, he never wants to um, be, you know, Pollyannish about things when he can get to the, the deeper complexity and humanity below. Jonathan Alter's biography of Jimmy Carter, released in 2020, is called His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, thanks for giving us a few thoughts at, at the end of this series. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.